This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Friday morning, which means we assemble the weekly news panel. Let's say hello to one of our panelists, Joita Gupta, who's down the hall in Studio One. Good morning, Joita. Good morning, Dave. Joita, it's so nice to have you so close yet so far away. Yeah, you took the words from my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try not to uh, bother you during the taping of The Pulse later. I'll try not to walk <laughs> through any of those important shots. Uh, Joita, let's jump into our first story. We're just endeavoring to reconnect uh, with Michelle. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says Russia's decision to mobilize reservists shows Moscow's not serious about negotiating an end to the war. Zelensky says Russia must be sanctioned for its invasion of Ukraine. ...has been committed against Ukraine and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men. European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Burl is promising new sanctions against Russia after the escalation. These threats jeopardize in an unprecedented scale international peace and security. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also condemned the Russian escalation in the war. His partial military mobilization, his nuclear threats, as well as Russia's rushed referendums to try to annex parts of Ukraine, are unacceptable. Putin's behavior only goes to show that his invasion is failing. Joita, you want us to revisit these developments in Ukraine. What do you want us to explore? So much to explore in this particular story, Dave. It is a rapidly developing story, one that has dominated the headlines in the last week. And there are many threads to pull apart. The threat of a nuclear weapon uh, launch is one that I think everyone takes very seriously. And that's certainly where Putin is going with some of the rhetoric we've heard coming out of the Kremlin. And we've also seen that the strategy to make threats about nuclear weapons and to hold rushed referenda in several provinces which have been occupied by Russia over the course of this war has been met with consternation from, you just heard Justin Trudeau, but also from other leaders across the world. And through all of this, there are questions looming large about what the international response should be. Could the UN play a role here? The UN General Assembly has also taken place this week, and the Ukraine conflict has been a major point of discussion at the UN General Assembly. And beyond all of that, I think it it brooks the larger question of where do ordinary people go here? We're not just talking about people in Ukraine whose lives have been deeply disrupted because of this conflict. I, I You'll forgive the understatement there. But also people in Russia who are now protesting this conflict, Dave, especially with Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin calling for the uh, uh, the reservists, and and the, the, now there's a lot of protests around that. So, so much to unpack in this particular story, and I think maybe a place to really start that conversation is 
what kind of a response we take right here in Canada. So let's start there. Let's start with the Canadian response. Certainly, uh, Justin Trudeau and and the federal government have been uh, supportive in terms of supplying weapons, in terms of supplying money, support. They've already taken a pretty strong role. You've heard the prime minister talking quite a bit this week at the UN Assembly about the situation in Ukraine. So we come to Michelle. Michelle, do you imagine the Canadian role may change here or do you expect the status quo? I honestly don't imagine it will change a whole, whole lot just because getting involved in inactive armed conflicts is, has never historically been Canada's strong suit. Uh, where I'm expecting to see more dialogue, and I think it'll be interesting to watch, is going to be around immigration response. Uh, there has been a lot of effort rolled out so far in terms of welcoming Ukrainian refugees, although their arrival here has not been smooth and the execution of those programs still leaves something to be desired. I don't imagine those needs are going to change anytime soon, but I'm also interested to see how that's going to impact on what Joita was referencing earlier in terms of the Russian mobilization. Now, ordinary citizens are going to be roped in. There were some interesting figures flying around about flights filling up rapidly within the first 24 hours after that announcement was made. For context, I thought this was very striking. That's the first time that they've tried to do conscription and mobilization on this kind of scale since the Second World War. Mm. So this is a big step for them. And obviously, it hasn't gone down very well among at least some of the Russian people. There were there were anti-war protests across the country, hundreds of arrests. Uh, like I said, lots of people trying to skip out of town and, and get a flight out of there, a one-way flight. So in terms of Canada's role, I'm going to be interested to see how they handle that now that there is that additional wrinkle in the refugee uh, crisis. But in terms of additional help, it's possible. Um, certainly, there's been call for Canada to offer more aggressive types of arms than what has been provided so far. We'll be interesting to see if that actually comes to pass. But Ukraine has been able to fight back some offensives in recent months. So I don't know. I, I don't think there's a huge appetite, at least politically, for Canada to step up its its armed part of this of the support for Ukraine. Yeah, we, we spoke pretty extensively to about this with uh, Professor Marta uh, Dychuk from Western University yesterday about uh, what's going on on the ground in regards to that 300,000 people conscription, especially from some of the outer reaches of the Federation, uh, not mm -hmm. necessarily the wealthy folks in Moscow, but uh, a lot of ordinary folks from the far reaches of the country and what kind of political challenge that creates domestically. I fully suspect the Canadian role is going to be about status quo. Uh, we don't have the military military capacity to really go yeah. above and beyond other than just more money and more of the type of weapons that we're giving. The really heavy artillery is going to come from the United States, from Britain, from France, from way more industrialized military powers. But Joita, what do you expect in regards to the Canadian role? I didn't expect that being down the hall from you would result in this kind of an extreme mind melt, Dave. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's, it's the water. It's the water in the coffee machine in this place. Uh, but yes, I think in terms of military aid, um, I suspect we'll see the status quo continue. Uh, I know that um, in June of last year, the government did commit to $626 million in military aid. And that has, you know, that has included things like equipment, some of which has been rolled out. Uh, but Ukraine is asking for more military aid in the form of um, armament and weapons. And I'm not sure if Canada is going to go along with that request for increased military aid. It's, as Michelle pointed out correctly, not really been part of our traditional role. Canada, of course, famously known as peacekeepers. It's, But it is interesting because just in the last week or so, the tide of the war really does seem to have turned in favor of Ukraine. And I wonder if what Canada will really end up doing is the kind of thing it's always 
purportedly been very good at, which is negotiating uh, and negotiating an end to the war or pushing for some kind of a diplomatic solution. It could include the return of all occupied territories to Ukraine, or it could also include putting pressure via NATO on both parties, Russia and Ukraine, to bring a speedy end to the conflict. There was a really interesting uh, conversation that took place, uh, at least from some quarters. There was a call on Canada to prevent uh, Russians from visiting the country. That is something that the government had refused to do. And I have to say, in light of some of the developments around the conscriptions and the flights that are filling up and the people who are leaving en masse, that was probably a good decision. And I think that one, the government is likely to continue to stand by. I will echo Michelle in saying that... Um, like we should be accepting people from Russia who wish to flee, uh, Canada needs to continue to, uh, to the extent as much as possible, accept Ukrainian refugees. Obviously, there's always uh, possible avenues to make the resettlement process a little smoother. And so I hope that we will be able to do that. Uh, but I think we have seen a lot of support from Canada, both from the government and also in terms of civil society, in terms of trying to make Ukrainian refugees uh, as welcome as possible. I would be very interested to see, because I think I mentioned this whenever we last discussed Ukraine, that there is a well-established diaspora of, uh, you know, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I would be very curious to know whether the changing tide of the war in that part of the world also results in changing demands from Ukrainians living right here at home, because that might be a more compelling reason for the government to change its course of action. Let's move to over say, to... If I can jump in for please, two seconds, please. too, is just on the Ukrainian connection note... And this is strictly speculation. There's no indication that she's been involved in this. But Joita talked about Canada helping to play a role in negotiations. We happen to have a deputy prime minister in the form of Christopher Freeland, who is a Ukrainian and B has mm -hmm. proven her medal as a negotiator during mm -hmm. the uh, new U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade deal. So yeah, just just putting that out no, there. You never, you, you never know. It's right? a it's a valuable thought. It's a really valuable thought. We're going to do a deep dive into the United Nations in the next segment of the show, but I want to ask one UN-related question here, and let's not dwell on it too, too much, but Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has asked for Russia's veto vote on the Security Council to be removed. I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to happen. The Americans didn't lose theirs when they illegally invaded Iraq. The Chinese haven't lost theirs for, like, genocide and human rights abuses for, like, 70 years Russia ain't gonna lose their ain't gonna lose their Security Council vote. But Joita, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I agree with you. Not least because uh, a couple of things are happening. One, the UN Charter actually makes Russia a member of the Security Council. And two, in order to make any kind of a change to the structure of the UN, including removing the veto from one of the members of the Security Council or to change the composition of the Security Council itself, not only do you need a two-thirds majority of the General Assembly, but you also need get this all five members of the Security Council to agree. That's not likely to happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, 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 but, but there are workarounds. I'll grant you that there are workarounds um, because, you know, some, uh, because it was, because at one point the, the United Nations did replace the nationalist government of China, the one that's based out of Taiwan, with uh, the government in Beijing. So they do find workarounds and international lawyers love to look for these loopholes. But in order to enforce any kind of a loophole or workaround, you're going to need a lot of political will from everybody in the room, basically everybody who's a UN member except Russia mm -hmm. and possibly China, basically saying we're going to ignore this rule. And again, it's not 
very plausible that that is going to happen. And I think Zelensky knows that too. I think he knows it's highly unlikely that Russia is going to have its veto taken away. I think he was trying to make a public statement yeah. about how yeah. overwhelmingly powerful Russia is and how the odds are stacked against them. The one last thing I'll say is that there's that really famous instance about the UN acting uh, in Korea and sending troops. So people might be saying, well, why aren't isn't the UN getting more involved? Well, that was because... Um, Russia actually decided, they would say unwisely, to boycott the uh, Security Council meeting. So I don't think that's going to happen either. So yeah. just to keep that in mind as well. Um, Michelle, I think Joy delayed most of that out there. But any thoughts on Zelensky's uh, perpetual attempt to shift over to windows? Not much to add beyond what Joey just said. Honestly, I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and I feel like Zelensky didn't really have much choice other than to make that kind of demand because it's the kind of thing that you ask for in a case like this. Uh, when you're faced with a, an, a, a power imbalance and an aggressor who, who holds a, an unusual degree of international sway under the circumstances here, uh, worth noting that the Security Council uh, did try to vote to ask them to shut down the war in Ukraine. And wouldn't, wouldn't you know, Russia objected to that. Yeah. So I think he, it, it makes sense and it's politically savvy of him to not only highlight the power imbalance, but make those kinds of demands. I mean, it's kind of a negotiating basics, right? You, you ask for more than you're yep. willing to accept. Yeah, so. number one rule in negotiation, make the big yeah. ask, and then it's easier exactly. to find a solution yeah. or a compromise somewhere in the middle. Uh, Michelle, Joita mentioned the referendums, and we also heard the Prime Minister mention the referendums in that clip that I played off the top. I don't put much stake in these. Sorry, I keep throwing cold water on all these points. I don't take much stake in these because it's not exactly clear that Russia has free and fair elections in their own country. I don't imagine how free and fair this referendum, these referendums may be either. Pass the cold water pitcher. I'm with you completely. Uh, these are uh, these are referenda that are that are being widely dismissed before they've even really gotten underway by the West. They're they're widely expected to go Moscow's way. There's about four provinces that are taking part here, including some names that you've probably heard of, like Luhansk and Donetsk. Um, but yeah, I, I expect these to go much as expected and to be treated as such and as Moscow would add yet another sticking point to yeah, these it's, complicated discussions. <laughs> it's also it's also hard to say like hey we're having this referendum about whether or not you want to be occupied by Russia but those of you who don't want to be occupied by Russia probably fleed. Mm -hmm. So you know like well, exactly. like, the, yeah. you know there's like there's all like it's not even just is this election free and fair is this even like legitimate when half that population has been displaced or more than half that population has been displaced. Uh, Joita I don't mean to throw uh, cold water on your own premise on your own question. Question, but any thoughts on the referendum? I was actually going to say, hand that picture over, unless, you know, because I would love to, you know, dive with a bit of cold wow, water it's like myself. A, it's, a, but, well, it's like a Tuesday but, at Cafe Campus over here. We're just passing <laughs> right? the picture yeah. around. Let's just turn this into a water fight. <laughs> uh, but um, but I, I think it's an interesting question because you're right. Uh, it has been roundly criticized as a farce uh, by most international uh, leaders in France. Macron saying he's not going to recognize the results as valid. Germany following suit. Uh, you heard Justin Trudeau right off the top. But I think it's really interesting to see why he might have made the claim. There's at least one expert based in Canada whose name, I'm sorry, I cannot recall, uh, who said that they basically need to have this referendum, these referenda now, or they're not going to be able to do so in 10 days because that's the extent to which the tide of the war has turned. Mm. I think there is a lot more going on here for the Kremlin. A couple of things come to mind. First, they're trying to consolidate 
um, their position. And I think these referendums serve as a prelude to annexation. So in the four provinces, Michelle mentioned them, um, there is a large Russian-speaking population, and there has been an, a push to join Russia for a very long time. So Russia is trying to hold these referendums to show that, look, people in these provinces want to join Russia, and they want to be a part of Russia. And so they're trying to do a couple of things here. One, they're trying to shore up support uh, for, you know, on the basis of, of sovereignty and self-determination. But they're also trying to perhaps shore up support at home because this war has gotten very unpopular in Russia. And I think they're trying to change the channel or, 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 or shift the discourse by saying, but you see, we're not invading re- Ukraine. This is a fight for fellow Russians. This is a fight for Russian um, on Russian soil. So I think there's a lot of things happening here. And there are no uh, international monitors present. So your point about these uh, these referendums being free and fair is well taken or not being free and fair rather should be. Uh, there's a wide speculation that the results will be rigged in favor of the Kremlin. Um, but the one other thing I'll point out is that these referendums are also taking place in the context of a massive crackdown on civil liberties, mm. which we don't really have time to get into here. But I think that context is also very important to consider. There's always an appeal that any government can make or any institution can make or any advocacy organization can make about self-determination. So I, that point is definitely well taken, Joita, that certainly as they try to frame this, they say this is about giving the people of these provinces the opportunity to self-determine, which that could fall upon some sympathetic ears depending on where you live in the world. But it, but it, the, the framing the framing is critical. I think the practicality uh, will certainly water that one out. Let's finish where Joita started in her opening remarks, which is nuclear war or nuclear weapons, which have loomed large over this even since the Crimea invasion in 2014 and it's loomed large over the run-up into this into the early days of this and where we stand today and it seems every couple of weeks somebody particularly Vladimir Putin will muse about nuclear weapons I don't put too too much stock into those musings unless he legitimately is interested in ending the world and I don't think he is but Michelle what do you make of the conversation once again being uh, of nuclear weapons once again sort of rising up in the discourse well I I think it just is a, is a testament to the power of that threat that it keeps coming up right you you, you can't afford not to take it seriously at least to some degree. Uh, I don't personally imagine Vladimir Putin's going to necessarily pull the trigger on stuff immediately, but I will say that early on in the war, I, I distinctly recall visiting with some relatives and some news alerts started to come out about a potential breach at a nuclear plant in Ukraine. This was, you know, the war at this point was three or four days old and we all got kind of spooked. Everything was put to bed. There have been subsequent alarms just like it in the days since that didn't provoke the same reaction, but it is a very real and grave threat, and Ukraine is at the center of it. So I, I think it's inevitable that these that, that subtext enters these conversations. And while I don't necessarily think the threat is imminent, I think it is potent, and I think it's always going to be part of the backdrop as any kind of negotiations take place after this. Joita, we finish where you started in regard to nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think the threat of nuclear weapons is always taken seriously. But I want to pick up on that word negotiations. I think that... Some experts have made the point that um, when you consider the degree of atmospheric contamination uh, associated with any kind of nuclear strike, given that Russia is so close to Ukraine, they're basically targeting themselves 
as much as they are targeting Ukraine. And I suspect that the Kremlin knows this. So many experts have actually called the bluff in this instance. They're not saying that we don't take nuclear threats uh, seriously, but they are saying that this might be a ploy for the Kremlin to get the West to put pressure on Ukraine to come to the negotiating table and make concessions. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.